United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest is Anne Bracken. Her latest book, Crash, a memoir of overmedication and recovery, explores mother-daughter experiences of mismanaged care for depression and chronic pain. Anne serves as a contributing editor for Little Patuxent Review, and she co-hosts the Wild Readings Poetry Series in Columbia, Maryland. She is a correspondent for the Justice Arts Coalition, exchanging letters with incarcerated people to foster their use of the arts. Her poetry, essays, and interviews have appeared in numerous anthologies and journals. Anne holds a BA in Speech Pathology and Audiology from Towson University and a Master of Science in Education in Communication and Learning Disorders from Johns Hopkins. She has taught in public and private schools, community colleges, and the University of Maryland College Park during the past 40 years. Anne Welcome to the Seminary Explorers. Thank you, Katie. I'm very happy to be here. So this week, uh, there was a Terry Gross piece on NPR about Nan Golden's documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. And Nan Golden is, of course, the artist who led a very successful campaign against the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. And the documentary has an Oscar nomination. I was listening to that this week, and she has a quote, which is, the wrong things are kept secret. And when I heard this quote from Nan, I was thinking about your book, and I would say uh, something that kept resonating as I was reading it was that the wrong things are accepted. What do you think about that? Well... Uh, I think Nan Golden's work in uh, calling out the Sacklers is spectacular, and I really believe in the power of using art to speak to uh, grave injustice, like what the Sackler family perpetrated on many millions of people. And I believe, from my experience and my mother's and from all the people that I know that have similar situations to mine, that we're getting the wrong story about what can actually help depression and chronic pain. Hmm. Very good. Um, since this book has come out, you've had an opportunity to do a number of interviews, and you've also been getting reader feedback. And I'm just curious what has been resonating with people. What have you heard that maybe you did or did not expect? And have you heard other people uh, agree that this, um, that sometimes the wrong things are accepted and that there are so many assumptions made about uh, medication being just the knee-jerk response? The, The main reaction is that people can't believe how many drugs my mother and I were given. Mm. And most people, when they think about an experience of depression, think about going to a doctor and, you know, being given a prescription and feeling better in a few weeks. 
And that's exactly what happened to me the first two times that I had an experience of depression. But the third time, uh, nothing worked. None of the drugs work. And so they just kept giving me more and more drugs and more and more combinations of drugs. And um, when I found, I, I actually found my father's records of my mother's illness. They were 30 years of records. And he was really meticulous, favorite. wasn't he, about that, about his yeah. records? Yes. I mean, he had spreadsheets of the drugs that she took and how many she took and how she responded, and he had letters that he had written to her doctors detailing all the different medications that she'd been on. And I I just couldn't believe that, you know, there were at least 30 years between the time mom first experienced depression and when I began to experience depression, and yet doctors were doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. They were overloading people with drugs even when the person was not getting better. Something that's interesting in the way that you've put the book together is there's an appendix, and it says a list of drugs for H. Dempsey, and you have the time frame, and then you also for your mom, and then you have the list of drugs for you. And that is so interesting to see the breakdown and the time period. Yes, yes. I thought that was really important to do because when I found my mother's records, the, the first drug I noticed that she was given was Ritalin, which is uh, an amphetamine, a stimulant drug, and we still use it today. We primarily use it for narcolepsy and um, attention deficit disorder. But in the late 50s and even starting in the 30s and 40s, Ritalin was the first drug that people used for depression. Hmm. Because, of course, it has a stimulant effect. You feel energized. You feel focused, which are the kinds of symptoms that are the opposite of how you often feel when you're depressed. Hmm. So true. Can, can you say something about consent and informed consent? I appreciated the way this came out in your book, too, oh, okay. that we tend to not... Okay. We, we tend to not pay it attention to informed consent and how important that is? Well, for example, I'll just say I have a friend who spent a number of periods of time in psychiatric facilities due to some very unfortunate circumstances. And the last time that she went into the hospital, the doctors were talking about changing her medications. And I said, well, you know, just remember that you have the right to informed consent. And she said, what's that? Oh. Hmm. But if you, if you pull back the curtain and you start reading, even, even just on the Internet, American Psychiatric Association has forms to fill out, to use when you're talking with a patient about what drugs you're recommending for this patient to take. And you're supposed to fully informed consent would would tell you um, the proposed treatment, the possible negatives, the possible positives, the alternative treatments, and what it would look like to discontinue the drug. And I have to say, that never happened to me. I don't think it was a common practice back in the 90s. But according to my friends, 
it's still not a common practice, and it is definitely supposed to be. Hmm. So you should have a choice. You should know, you know, this, like for my mother, when I researched her drugs, I realized um, the two biggest problems that she had were anxiety and insomnia. And when I looked at the drugs, several of them, especially taken together, caused those things. Uh, yeah, yeah. So she was taking the drugs for years and struggling with sleep and anxiety for years, and nobody ever thought to say, oh, let's take a look at these drugs. And the same thing happened to me. Um, at, at some point during during this experience, I was on a number of psychiatric drugs to the point where I just felt numb. Hmm. I couldn't feel anything, and I became suicidal. I was consumed with suicidal thoughts and feelings for, as I remember it, a couple of years. And when I started doing the research for this book, I discovered that many of the drugs I was taking actually have psychic numbing as an effect. So I was experiencing the effects of the drugs, and even though I kept telling the doctors that, they never decreased the dosage or tried taking me off the drug. They just added electroconvulsive therapy. Mm. Well, and much of the tapering off, you initiated yourself, right? Yes, yes, which I'm not going to recommend. I say that very clearly um, in the beginning of the book, and I also have resources in the appendix for different support groups and organizations that can help people if they want to taper off of psychiatric drugs. But remember, this was 2002. Yeah. So it was 21 years ago, and there really wasn't the awareness of um, the possible harms that can come from psychiatric drugs. At least it wasn't widespread, and there certainly wasn't widespread help to taper off the drugs. So I did work with my therapist who um, had had some experience in working with her clients tapering off the drugs. Do you have um, an excerpt that you'd like to read that that has a that sort of addresses this? Well, I have an excerpt that I can read that that um, expresses how the doctors weren't listening to me. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be great if you would like to read that. Okay, sure. Um, I know my depression. I knew my depression called for more exploration. And my experiences with other episodes of chronic pain without a discernible cause convinced me that the migraine was related to deeper issues. I just couldn't make the connection. Here I am, a 43-year-old woman with a 13-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter, and I feel like the doctors are writing me off. The doctors nodded their heads and dismissed me when I said these things. So I turned to books. Hmm. You turned to books. <laughs> yes. And I, the first book I mentioned is Thomas More's book, Care of the Soul, yeah. where he, he says, um, 
you know, the, the, we might also discover that depression has its own angel, a guiding spirit whose job it is to carry the soul away to its own remote places where it finds unique insight and enjoys a special vision. Now, that is the antithesis of what most people would ever use to describe depression. Sure. You know, that it can be a vehicle to something better. But that was my experience, that if, you know, I I just knew that it was so much more than a chemical imbalance, which is what the doctors kept telling me, um, I knew there was another purpose because you just don't have a condition that hangs on like this for four years and not have, you know, not mean something in your life. At least that's, that was how I had to look at it in order to be able to get through it. Right. And you're also, you know, very clear. This is a, this is a really personal book. It's a memoir. Um, You talk about your experience and it's interesting. It's your direct experience. And with your mother, you're growing up in the household and you have a particular perspective of being a bystander. Well, bystander, I don't know if that's the, that's the best term, but um, you are very clear about this being a personal story. And even though there are a lot of conclusions that people draw, you're also really just sharing of your experience. Um, And when I say bystander, also something that I find interesting is when I was reading the book, I was thinking about how everyone is trying to cope and function with the information they have available to them. And a lot of times that's very limited. I think about your father. I think about, uh, you know, friends, um, other family members, depending on what's going on in society. I mean, your mother, especially in the 60s, a lot of assumptions made about women's health and, you know, roles in society, what you need to give up, uh, what you need to do to fix things. There's always this this sort of drive to, to have sort of a quick fix. But it is, it is really interesting. And even people trying as hard as they can, um, it is difficult to be a bystander to someone that you love going through depression in the same way that it is trying to deal with it um, for for yourself, right? Yes, yes. And I, you know, part of the issue that I was dealing with was, you know, as a child and a young person growing up, my only experience of depression was observing my mother. Mm. So I was observing someone who had this mysterious illness called depression Mm. and who never got well. Mm. She was locked into that for the rest of her life. So when, when I was depressed for a four year period of time, you know, I was absolutely determined that I was going to get well. I certainly didn't know for sure that I would, but I, that was the only way I could deal with what I was going through. And my ex-husband at the time, I think, was terrified because of my mother's experience. And he he would unfortunately express his deepest fears by saying, you know, you're never going to get well. Hmm. You're always going to be like this. This 
be like this, meaning be depressed, and this is how our life is going to play out. And I just said to him, I know that that's not true. But I, I not only had to fortify myself, I had to, in some ways, like work against his extreme negativity. Yeah. Well, you have to have a sense of perspective because if there's no hope or perspective of things getting better, then how is that going to guide your decisions, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, also knowing that I had had two other very brief episodes of depression and used one drug, um, Elevil, which is an old drug, but it worked. And I tapered off of it and just went on with my life. Uh, So I knew that it was possible to get better, but I, the, you know, I think the problem came in where, you know, here I am in my 40s. I'm a very spiritual person. I have a lot of life experience and I, I have an understanding that illness has more than just a physical or chemical cause. Illness can have psychological causes. And what I eventually realized was that the depression I was experiencing was due to, you know, years of verbal abuse in my marriage. And the chronic pain of the migraine was my body's way of calling my attention to the, to the um, severity of the situation. So it's like a warning signal in some ways. Yes. Pain can, and, and I had had those warning signals before, I, which is what I referred to when I read that paragraph. Um, I had my, I called it physical depression. So when I look back in my childhood, I, when my mother was in the psychiatric hospital for six months and none of us knew where she was, I began experiencing stomach pains every day in school. And my doctor took me to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician just said, she needs to eat more breakfast. (laughs) And when I look back on that, I think, no, I was really upset because my mother was gone. Sure. And it was showing up in my body after I started putting all these pieces together because, you know, we weren't supposed to cry. We, (laughs) We were always supposed to be good. You know, we, we, it was not acceptable that we were too needy or anything. So where else is that pain going to go? It's going to go into your body. So true. And also yeah. what you're mentioning here is how individual illness is, which is another, there's an understandable wish to say this this medication will take care of this, but each each person you need to figure out what's actually going on and it's not so much like well this this amount of advil will stop this pain now <laughs> right i mean even with a a regular headache sometimes you know you realize hey i'm doing too much i i have too many things on my plate i have to stop this and the advil is only a a crutch to to help you, but if you don't look at the other areas of your life, you might continue to get headaches. You know, the pain is really a warning signal. Yeah. And depression, you know, depression doesn't happen in isolation. We're social beings. 
we're we're in a society that has a lot of problems, a lot of stress and uncertainty, and people like me are sometimes in very painful marriages. And so, you know, it's not unusual if someone keeps berating you that you would have a low mood and, and, and a lack of energy and kind of want to withdraw. That's, that's not abnormal. That's not really an illness. That's a response to your life situation. Well, it's so encouraging that you are thriving and doing well and able to look back on this in, with perspective and that you're also sharing this very personal story um, with this book. I love the last paragraph that you have about your mom. Oh, and, you know, you. I was wondering if I'd love to have you read that, but also before you read it, just because we have sort of jumped in and we have kind of leapt over the, you know, the beginning part of the book where you're talking about what it's like and what kind of person your mom is. If you wanted to just say something briefly about her, and then I think it would be a lovely ending if you could read this final paragraph. I think it's quite beautiful. Okay. Um, my mother, before she got sick, my mother um, graduated from Maryland Institute College of Art with a degree in costume design, and she she has some beautiful paintings of her fashion design. She was the president of her high school alumni association for many years. She was a wonderful cook and gardener. She belonged to book clubs. She was on her good days. Um, she was a very creative mother um, and, you know, taught us how to ride our, our bikes and cooked with us and mm. made Valentine's with us. So, she was a loving, kind person who was really faced with incredible odds. And, you know, this book, partly the book is a way to um, look back at my mother's life and say, you know, none of this was, was her fault. I think a lot of people felt like she stayed so-called sick and that in some ways it was her fault. Mm. And mm. um when you look at all the drugs that she took and the way that they interact with each other, you quickly realize she really didn't have a chance. She was so chemically um, overloaded that she couldn't, you know, no, I don't think any person could override the effects of all those drugs. Yeah. Um, and, and if I have one message to say to people, it's, you know, if something isn't working, stop doing it. Hmm. Don't do more no matter, no matter what a doctor says. Sometimes if you're going down a road and you're and you know that you're lost, even if the person beside you is saying, No, no, you're not lost, you have to trust yourself. Yeah. And you have to, if if this is your experience that you're not getting better, then it's you have every right to say, I want to try something else. So Thank you for that's that. That's what I would encourage people to really take into their hearts. But here's the last paragraph. Um, and my mother did die of um, the throat cancer that metastasized. Hmm. When I close my eyes now and think about mom, I see pictures of her with all of us kids when she came home from the hospital 
for her occasional Sunday visits. Pictures of mom at the beach and mom dressed up and hosting a party. Her smile was brilliant. She looks happy and relaxed, leaning up against my father or snuggling with all of us on the sofa. And now, instead of being disappointed at all the things mom didn't do, I marvel that she kept her life going so well, given the powerful drug she took for so many years. My mother was amazing. Telling her story is my way of reaching back in time to heal her, to help her, and to let her know that someone heard her in the darkness. Thank you for reading that, Anne. Congratulations on the book, um, and thank you for your time today. You've been listening to The Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest has been Anne Bracken. Visit her website at annebrackenauthor.com and visit the arts and literary journal Little Patuxent Review at littlepatuxentreview.org. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Katie. It was a pleasure to be here. You have been listening to The Seminary Explores, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.